Hello and welcome to the Musicking Podcast. I'm your host, Trinity Lay, and this is part two of our conversation on ritual drumming in the Himalayan region of India. We left off talking about the iconic rhythms that are played during a wedding processional, where a procession travels to deliver a newlywed woman from the village of her birth to the village that her husband lives in. In this episode, we'll talk a bit about how these very women have valuable insight and knowledge on the art of ritual drumming, as well as the difficulties and breakthroughs that some of these drummers have experienced and continue to experience in the modern music industry today. I hope you enjoy! And so you bring up the topic of marriage and something that you're looking to include in future research is perspective of women in these hereditary families, because when they marry, they relocate to their husband's village and they have a very specific kind of knowledge and two perspectives of the drumming tradition. Yeah. I have to credit my partner, Mira, who, you know, lived with me in the, in the mountains and is helping me to do a lot of this research. There's a very gendered life in the hills. Um, women uh, do a lot of the, not really just in the house labor. In fact, they do most of the, the work outside of the house. Um, in addition to the house labor, they are in the fields, they're taking care of the animals. They're incredibly busy and they stay with other women. And so it's very difficult for me to do that kind of work. But I started to be really interested when I would be around the men and be in these ritual settings. And then I would see some of the women making gestures like they were drumming, or I would see young girls in the village actually tap on things and following the drumming or just playing on their own. And then occasionally I would see older women, much older women criticizing uh, some of the men for their drumming, <laughs> which was awesome to see that. And it, it brought that question to the fore of what is the role of women? Cause they never play, almost never play in these rituals, in the ceremonies. So what's going on there? Uh, you know, I interviewed just a few of the women in this village towards the end of my stay when I really started thinking about these questions, but I, that's a, a big point of emphasis. Now, when I go back next year is to, to focus on that question and I feel like, as you say, the way that women move between these two locations, one before marriage where they grow up, and then as usually quite young women when they relocate to this new context, after marriage there, there are all these discourses in the region about, well, women shouldn't play because it will affect their fertility. Like This is a common trope across many cultures to prevent uh, women from doing certain activities. And so that's what often I will hear if I ask that question, well, why don't you play? They'll just kind of repeat this. But the truth is that many women do play and did play as young women, as girls or young women, as a kind of play, just like all children. They learn, if they grow up in these families of hereditary drummers, they learn the drumming um, and they become really proficient listeners as well. And so then they move to this new context after marriage. And of course, they don't drum there but they are surrounded by this new dialect of drumming. So they become kind of bi-musical in a way, or they become exposed to these two, two traditions. So I think they're in a position to listen differently, to be critical in a different way than the men who just do it the way it's supposed to be done. And that's all they kind of know. And um, the men, when I ask them about other styles of drumming, 
really are dismissive. Like they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> they don't, they don't know. They, they don't know. Like we know we only, we do it the right way. Whereas women have a very different perspective on that. And they're actually able to dig into technique and what's appropriate for certain kinds of settings and what's not. And so they're thinking about this very differently. And that's what makes me very interested in their perspective. So I'd like to look at how Himalayan drumming kind of exists in the modern day, because you mentioned with the uphill and downhill traveling patterns, you can just call each other and let them know, but drumming still exists. And earlier you talked about an interest in the music industry as well. And these regions have a pretty healthy vernacular industry, would you say? Yeah. Do the Dhol and the Mao players have a stake in this at all? And are they able to find work in these recording studios making these albums because the folk sound has become something very much so enjoyed by the public in these areas. Yeah, you're you're right. I mean, it, especially in the last, I'd say, seven or eight years, there's been a real uptick. It was probably about that long ago the Dole was recognized by the state government of Uttarakhand as the sort of instrument, the official instrument of the region which it always was, <laughs> is just actually acknowledged. But now there's my good friend and collaborator, Pritam Bartwan, who comes from this community of drummers. He's established a, an academy to teach it, but it's the first one. There have been other institutes that have, you know, had a, a, a course or like a, a couple weeks or they've invited a guest drummer. But this is is the first sort of like permanent institution where you can study this. It's had this interesting position of being kind of everywhere, but really being marginalized at the same time for its whole history, I think. And now there's a there's a shift to embracing the folk sound and having it be part of what defines being from this region. And there's a lot of upper caste, middle and upper caste folks who are trying to learn this now. That's a big shift, probably one of the bigger shifts that's happening. That's a really great thing in a way. <laughs> but it also causes a lot of risk that it brings for hereditary drummers who have really had almost no access to the sort of capitalization of this art form. What's happened with the recording industry, one of the things that I was studying during my dissertation work in the early 2000s, was that in the studios, these drummers would rarely be called because of caste stigma primarily. The rhythms that they were playing on the dhol and the damao that were really distinctive to this region were being translated to be played on the tabla and the dholak, which are mar much more common drums throughout North India. And you can find players from within Uttarakhand, but also from anywhere that could play, and they would learn and sort of translate these patterns onto their drums. It was the Garwali, the, the, the local Uttarakhandi folks, who were doing the translating, but once they were translated, other people could pick those up and learn them. That's what I was talking about in my book of the folk sound without the folk body, is you're sort of keeping the essential sound, uh, even if you're changing the instrument it's played on, but you're sort of removing the whole body of that hereditary musician from the process. You know, now I'd say for a handful, maybe a little more than a handful of players, there's a lot of opportunities because of this I mean, the industry as a whole is really in a down phase over the last decade, I would say, kind of after I stopped my dissertation research. That was a peak period where there was still a lot of physical media being produced, cassettes and v video compact discs and all of that. And now 
that's completely dried up. There's really nothing. So people are still producing at a much lower budget and putting things out on YouTube and, and so on. Those are opportunities to get your name out. They're not really money-making opportunities. There's sort of like a dual economy, right, of those who have an established foothold in the industry who are largely of middle and upper caste background, not entirely, but mostly. And then and then there's a lot of hereditary musicians back in the villages who just kind of continue to do drumming, but rarely do only drumming. They might have a small plot of land if they're fortunate, and they've not been dispossessed of that in the past. Or they do menial labor and all kinds of other jobs. And there's a, a real sense of destitution and lots of social ills of alcoholism and so on in those drumming communities. I would say a lot of positive in this sort of modernization efforts, but still an overall marginalization and neglect that's experienced within the drumming community. Mm-hmm. And you did a really interesting case study of a festival which was mostly run by hereditary drummers called the Rahman. And it underwent a process where it gained uh, the UNESCO intangible cultural heritage designation. And there was all these things associated with it. And it really informs us a lot of how these artists are treated and how difficult it is for them to really like assert agency over their knowledge and their art form. Could you go into detail about what you saw and you know what you heard from these people? Yeah, the village of Salur Dungra in the Chamoli district of Garwal has this festival called Raman, and they perform this festival every year in late April, generally. And this is a festival that uses carved wooden masks that represent a whole array of divinities and ancestral figures and historical figures who came through this region. And they do a series of like scenes that are performed with dance and with recitation of bards of epic stories. And while this is happening, the drummers are kind of leading the dancers through a series of scenes. And this happens over like nine days. It's very elaborate. And it, uh, as you say, received the UNESCO designation. This was in 2009. And I have all this video footage from before 2009 of, of this event. And it's really interesting to look at and then compare to the years after the designation in terms of like what happened. And so I, I, I did a small study of interviewing people in the Indira Gandhi National Center for the Arts, which is like the premier arts organization in India that oversaw the nomination process to UNESCO and sort of like who their people were who were kind of overseeing this process. And and then also people within the village from the hereditary drummers up to the headmen of the village and also like the entrepreneur who really spearheaded this from within the village. Right? And so trying to get a, a sense of all of these perspectives on what, what was happening. But what became very clear to me is is the drummer's who historically have been in a leadership position because they the drumming conducts the entire event and the drummers were able to hold this knowledge of 
not just the drumming, but really the dancing and the the structure of the ritual. The mask carving? They didn't do the mask carving. So that was a separate group of people that would carve the masks. And even the recitation of the epic by the bards, that was done by Brahmins from another village who would historically be invited in. So there's a role for everyone in the village in a certain way. But the drummers were really, really pivotal to leading the event. And what's happened over time is since the designation and even just before it, there's a council now made up of something like 20 to 25 individuals. And there's like one spot for a lower caste drummer in there. That council makes all the decisions. And they also have received, you know, many thousands of dollars of, in aid from the state following in, uh, this designation. So they also control that budget. And they, they vested some, you know, some control of that entire event away from the drummers. And there have been some efforts to compensate the drummers, to create a plan so that their knowledge is passed on to the next generation. But there's within the drumming community, the real sense that they're not in control of that process at all. And there, there really is no one looking out for them. And they're still kind of doing this at a subsistence level. The payment is almost nothing to participate in this nine days of continuous drumming. It's just a hereditary obligation that they have to the high caste uh, patrons within the village. And so th this is one of the examples, one of the contexts that I'm investigating in this one village. Mm -hmm. And you also look at how, as these performers are invited to perform in urban centers, how certain ideas of aesthetics and of how things should be presented are implemented into these performances to appeal to a certain audience that is no longer the village. And then these ideas are brought back and implemented in the village and then spread to other villages who might also practice that art form. So it's really interesting to see the flow of change. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's right. Uh, a lot of what we might say are modernist reform that's happened within this tradition, where a lot of very cosmopolitan sensibilities. So if you have a group of essentially farmers that are completely amateur, right, coming with their masks to a festival they've been invited to in Delhi. And the first time this happened, you know, in 2008, it was like they were just doing it from the way they have always done it. They didn't do it on a stage. There was no marked out space. There was even the order was also sort of subject to what the ritual needs were of the moment. But as soon as you go to an environment where people are paying tickets and coming to see this event, they had to work with a local Delhi-based director and he was kind of calling the shots. He said, okay, this is how we're going to do it. First you come, you're going to do this five minutes. You're going to stay within this cordoned off area. The drummers are going to be in a line back here. The drummers also would kind of have this alternation of who was in charge out of the eight families of drummers. But the director didn't like that. He appointed one drummer, the lead, and everyone else would follow what they did. So there were a lot of ways in which this traditional process was changed and then, as you say, when they went back to the village, they instituted a lot of these reforms, which include having a cordoned off space for the dancing to happen, having people conform to a certain dress code if they were part of the ritual performance, to ban any kind of alcohol in the event, to use a more Sanskritized version of speaking to the public, and also to have a PA system and announce like what was going to happen. 
they revived, they kind of pulled back in some elements of the, of the ritual performance that had sort of fallen away in an attempt to sort of like show the historical, emphasize the historical importance of the tradition and several other, other things. But th this gives you a sense of kind of how formalized and to use a word that uh, South Asian scholars use, Sanskritized to sort of elevate in, in, in stature uh, the ritual from the eyes of a sort of elite within South Asia. Mm -hmm. And something I enjoy reading in your work is just the focus on how the dichotomy of folk and classical big traditions, little traditions, and yeah. um, how these juxtaposing ideas are manufactured and they have a very much so more class association than actual musical content being quite different. So you can kind of see that movement here where they're they're taking this performance in this festival and they're giving it these upper caste associations to make it kind of seem more appealing to people like uh, oh this is like very culturally enriching it's it's historical it's it's got this intellectual connection and it's very interesting but you mentioned previously of your colleague Pritam Bartwan, and I wanted to end off on this because he has, as a hereditary drummer, he has carved out a path for hereditary drummers who are looking to find a foothold in recording industry and just as finding respect and recognition as an artist and as a musician. Could you tell us a bit about his journey and how he came to be where he is, despite the obstacles that he had to face. Yeah, sure. Pritam Bardwan is is from the region, a village just north, near the hill station of Masuri. Uh, grew up following his his father and and his uncle to these rituals, just like I was explaining earlier, uh, as a young kid and attending a lot of these religious rituals and festivals. Jagar is a name for the particular kinds of rituals where you try to awaken spirits and deities to you awaken them and invite them to come into a medium's body. And then they usually dance and communicate with everyone present. Pritam is from a family of Jagar practitioners, Jagariyas, as they're called, or gurus, so he he learned this as a child and was sort of in, um, surrounded by that. And he learned to play it on two different sets of drums. So one is the ones we've been talking about, the dhol and the damao, but also this double-headed pressure drum, which is has variable pitch, and it's called the hurka. And that's a more of an indoor drum that's played with the thali, which is a, a bronze plate that's just turned over on its head. And it sort of fills in the beats of the hurka. So Pritam is an exponent of both of these drumming traditions. But when he was growing up, he made the choice to go to All India Radio. Um, and because he has a really beautiful voice and he used to sing folk songs and film songs and everything else. And so he, when he went into the studio, they asked him to sing some folk songs and they liked it. And then they said, well, what else do you know? And so he sang Jagar his these ritual uh, very very elaborate and ornate kinds of vocalizations with the traditional drumming and they thought that was really amazing and and encouraged it and so he started to record joggers and he 
had his own way of editing them down because they're usually like hours long and they tell a very long narrative, but he found a way to condense them and sort of put them into a seven or eight minute commercial recording. He made 50, 60 albums and became a really big star in this region. And the jogger, that genre was his distinctive trademark of how he translated that into this medium. But interestingly, he never played the dole. He would always do it on the hurka, um, or he would just sing and have other kinds of accompaniment, like dholak and tabla. But with jagar, he would use hurka. He didn't play on dhol. And, and that's because dhol carries this stigma of being associated with the bajgi or aji community. And of course, he's from the, he's from that community. This is the hereditary drumming community to which he belongs. But there's a sense of stigma that's carried. There's a very low status afforded to that community within the broader society. Pritamji was, was aware of his status, of course, as a, as an emerging recording artist and downplayed that. He didn't really play the dole in public. He came to Cincinnati and helped us with several different concerts and just interactions with students. And he was, he's just a really gifted teacher and an amazing artist. Dole and the Mao are a big part of what we're doing here. And he's an expert at that. So he was teaching us that. And I think he had a kind of a real reassessment while he was here of what that means to him and what, what it means to come to America, which is a big deal for an artist from a rural part of India. And then to be asked to teach Dole, which is so stigmatized back in India. And he saw the attention that the videos from his, his performances here in the U.S. drew when he went back home. And I think it really sparked something in him. And it made him feel that this is an essential part of his being and his, his identity and his heritage that's being thrown away, not valued back home. It's up to him to take a role, a really different kind of role in advocating for the dole. So that's, that's exactly what he's done. He now incorporates that into all of his performances on stage. He talks about the issue. He mentors a number of young artists from this community in playing dole. And now he's started, as I mentioned, an academy to teach it. And so I'm incredibly proud of, of him and his journey. And he's always trying to <laughs> say that, that I catalyze that, but it's, in fact, it's really just his process of seeing how that's what he can do. The power of his story is so remarkable. And so I'm really looking forward to collaborating more with him when I go back to India, seeing what he's doing in his academy and sort of charting this transformation of the toll and its power and its resonance through this region. be sure to include information about like his academy and any links that they can the listener can go and listen to of his work and other you know examples of Dole and the mall players that you might have is there anything or any final words you'd like to say i just feel incredibly fortunate to be able to go and do this work you know Uttarakhand is not the first place you're going to hear about in india it's best known for these pilgrimage places that devout hindus and buddhists and Sikhs will travel to, but it has such a, an amazing, rich musical and devotional 
culture and I just encourage everybody to check it out and uh, thanks so much for having me on this platform. Thanks so much for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoyed the topic, then be sure to check out Dr. Fiol's book, Recasting Folk in the Himalayas, Music, Media, and Social Mobility. It goes really deep into detail on the topics that we briefly covered today about uh, social issues and issues of caste and class and stigma that all comes with the music industry in India in this region. It's a very interesting read, very well written. I'll also link his website that he's been putting together on his current research topic where he maps the same rhythm on a geographical plane, seeing how the same rhythm differs between villages and regions and why that is. You can see all of that information on my website, www.musicingpod.com, which has finally been put out and is available for anyone to look at. And it's still under construction, but the blog portion is up so you can read about terminology and see different links that I've posted and just delve a little bit more into the topics that we talk about. Follow us on social media at MusicingPod, on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Feel free to send me an email if you have any suggestions or questions or critiques, anything. I'd be happy to hear from you guys. Sorry about the long wait since the previous episode. I was having some technical issues as I described in my opener, and uh, I hope to see you again. Thank you.